Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. This episode will be slightly different than previous ones. Have you heard of the model minority myth? It's basically a stereotype that describes all Asians as hardworking, super successful, and high achieving. In honor of May being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I wanted to talk about that stereotype and how it's been weaponized against African Americans while simultaneously driving a wedge between both communities which is pretty ironic considering there is a history of Asian Americans and African Americans working together and supporting each other against racism as early as the 1940s. To understand the model minority myth and how it's been used against black communities, we begin during World War II. On December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. The following day, then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared war on Japan. The unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan, a state of war. Then in 1942, he questioned the loyalty of Japanese Americans. The Japanese-American community was essentially rounded up and put into internment camps in filthy, squalid desert areas, desolate, cold areas. That's Joyce Moy. She's the former executive director of the Asian-American Asian Research Institute at the City University of New York. She says Japanese-Americans had to give up their entire lives and were forced into camps surrounded by barbed wires. But fast forward 20 years, and according to Joyce, the Japanese-American community was thriving, and they began getting praised for that. In 1966, accolades in the form of a New York Times article, the headline, Success Story, Japanese-American Style. The author of the article lauded the ability of the Japanese-Americans to achieve and to be resilient after they had been imprisoned during the World War. Sounds innocent, right? Well, no. This essentially became the root of the model minority myth, which became a weaponized form of, why can't you be like them? 
the article pitted African Americans and Japanese Americans against each other. What the author described was Japanese Americans prevailing while African Americans were not. The author completely ignored all the systemic barriers black people dealt with while also painting Japanese people as the perfect marginalized ethnicity. Joyce says that article pushed the idea that Japanese Americans are resilient. They can be ignored, mistreated, and they will still rebound. And that very problematic belief spread to other AAPI communities. You don't have to worry about Asian Americans. They are high achievers. So there is always this concept that all Asians are good at math, that we're all capable of achieving high grades and doing well. She says part of the reason the stereotype became attached to other Asian ethnicities is that Asian Americans are often seen as forever foreign. For example, someone like me, whose family has been in the United States for four generations, has been told over and over again during my lifetime to go back to China. I, in fact, had never stepped foot in China. How could I go back to a country from which I never came? So there is this sense that we are forever foreign, that we're different, that we remain foreign and different, that we are not able to assimilate. As a matter of fact, that was the basis for things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. We were looked at as inferior beings that threatened white society and the Western way of living and the Western values. And we literally see this idea of forever foreign playing out in real time. A new study just came out showing that distrust in Asian Americans is rising. The study found that 33% of Americans believe Asian Americans are more loyal to their country of origin than the United States. That's up from 20% last year. Happy to talk to your mom, your cousin, and your... Kim Tran is a consultant and writer who focuses on race and gender. The model minority myth, I think it's important to remember that it comes out of a protective response from Asian Americans in a, in a big way. We never again wanted to be the only community that has ever been incarcerated purely because of our ethnicity and nationality. Kim says in addition to conflating Asian American racism with anti-Black racism, the model minority myth is also problematic because it erases the economic realities of different AAPI communities. Just imagining that we all live a life that looks like crazy rich Asians is one. A complete disservice, a complete disservice to experiences like mine. I grew up raised by a single parent. I grew up working class. The truth is that unemployment disproportionately hits Asians. For example, when an Asian person becomes unemployed, they are more likely to stay unemployed. If you look at leadership positions, Asians are not represented in leadership positions. We have undocumented folks in our community. We have queer folks. We have trans folks. And there's like this really strange racist thing that happens where we get lumped into the same... Andrew Yang bucket. And I find it extremely troubling, both as a person, because a part of racism is obviously confusing us with each other. And then as someone who does political work and someone who works on anti-racism in a lot of different capacities, because we're not honoring that reality, which means we're not actually changing the face of injustice or inequity in any meaningful way. Here's an example. 
Women overall make 76 cents to the dollar. Black women make 63 cents to the dollar. Despite the stereotype that Asian Americans are living lives of luxury, Vietnamese women have the same pay gap as black women. They're also only making 63 cents to the dollar. And I talk about that not in the sense of wanting to compete with the inequity that black women experience in the workplace because we experience very different things. I think whenever we talk about the diversity of the Asian American experience, we get to a way, a pathway for solidarity, right? So if you know that Vietnamese women are experiencing the same pay gap, you're inclined to think, oh, we're both really invested in ending pay inequity. And that's something that crosses bridges and moves across communities. But without understanding that diversity, you lose a sense of what Asian Americans have in terms of skin in the game. Go to any racial justice protest and you'll likely see signs of solidarity between black and Asian activists. Posters that read Asians for black lives or vice versa. This collab isn't anything new. In fact, it can be traced back to the days of Jim Crow. African Americans, for example, were not permitted to stay at various hotels and accommodations throughout the United States. Some of the Japanese American owned hotels were the only places that they could stay when they were on the West Coast and they were given accommodations. And when Japanese Americans were thrown into internment camps, black activists spoke out. One of the first things that happened in terms of nationally exposing the horrors of those camps was an article that was published by the NAACP in their magazine called The Crisis. And in that magazine, they talked about the conditions that they found in those camps. It was filthy, it was hot, there was not adequate food and proper sanitation. And they talked about how the elderly suffered, that children died in those camps as a result of the deplorable conditions. And one of the things that that article mentioned was the fact that these were people who had abided by the rules. These were people that worked hard and kept their head down and look how they were rewarded. As a matter of fact, the article said specifically they earned respect and what was their reward? They were plundered of everything and crowded into concentration camps fit only for pigs. And that's almost an exact quote from that article. And in that article, they stated if this can happen to them, What about Americans of African descent? Some black families drove hundreds of miles to these camps to visit their Japanese American friends and neighbors. There's a story about the Marshall family. And the thing that gets me about that story is the fact that they brought apple pie and ice cream to their imprisoned Japanese former neighbors. Can you imagine these two communities of all communities sitting down and partaking of apple pie and ice cream? Two communities that had been severely oppressed. As a result of the oppression that took place with the Japanese internment, there was a newfound and greater understanding of the racialized nature of this country. And you began to see Japanese Americans, especially the younger ones who saw what happened to their parents and grandparents, begin to gravitate 
towards the civil rights movement, they understood oppression in ways that others did not. Later in the 60s, there was an Asian American group called Red Guard. They were similar to the Black Panther Party in terms of demanding fair housing, health care, and community control of policing in San Francisco's Asian neighborhoods. According to published reports, at times, the two groups worked together. And this solidarity wasn't just a Cali thing. It happened across the country. There was a woman by the name of Ina Sugihara, who was one of the founding members of CORE, the Congress for Racial Equality. There's also the story of Yuri Kochiyama and her husband, who moved to Harlem and began to be very active in, again, the African-American and Black movement for civil rights, becoming very supportive of Malcolm X. Dr. Martin Luther King also leaned into this idea of solidarity. I always love to bring up the reality that that famous Dr. King quote about only light can drive out darkness is a Buddhist teaching. And again, Dr. King had these really beautiful relationships with Asian teachings. I think a lot here about Thich Nhat Hanh, who he nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. On the other hand, we also see that Asian folks are showing up in the work of building community and being in solidarity with Black folks. Another kind of, I like to call them B-sides of history, is that Ho Chi Minh actually was learning from Marcus Garvey and talking about anti-Blackness after attending some of those talks. So we have this really symbiotic history that tends to show up in echoes over and over again. We'll see it most recently, I think, with Asians for Black Lives that formed in 2014, 2015 across the country. There is also similar pain. In a future episode, we'll talk about the Harlem Hellfighters, but they were a Black Army Infantry Regiment in World War I. They fought bravely, despite racist treatment they received from fellow soldiers and the American government. The Harlem Hellfighters even received one of the highest honors by the French government. When they returned to the U.S., they weren't treated like white veterans. They returned to racism, discrimination, lynchings, Jim Crow, low pay, the list goes on. And that's what I thought of when Joyce shared this story about World War II Japanese-American soldiers. You know, Japanese-Americans were among the greatest fighting force this country has ever had, ever seen. Volunteering to fight for the United States while their mothers, their fathers, their children were imprisoned in these despicable camps. And when they came home, they faced discrimination. There are stories of camps being liberated by the Japanese-American troops, and they were told to stand back while the white commanders opened the gates for the photo ops. The 442nd Battalion is the most decorated military battalion in the entire history of the United States, including today. And when you you think about uh, what they sacrificed while their families were being treated as second, third, and fourth class citizens in, this, not in, in the United States, you can't help but get angry. We can't 
can't have this conversation without also acknowledging the tensions. When we come back, let's get into the uncomfortable. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. From solidarity during Jim Crow to whatever this is now. Do I call it tension? Is that media hype? I am the media. Whatever you call it, I don't know. But there's certainly pain. The first time I was called, I guess the first and only time I was called the N-word was by a man who was AAPI. I will also, since we're being vulnerable, share that the only time I've ever been called a was by a black elder. I think we have to reckon with the real toll that white supremacy has had in our communities. Activists say white supremacy causes marginalized groups to fight for crumbs. A few years ago, former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced he was ending testing into specialized high schools. His administration believed tests didn't capture a student's full potential, causing black and Latino students to be severely underrepresented. You see, much of these schools were predominantly Asian and white. Most educational activists called it a move to end racially segregated classrooms, but white and Asian parents fought against it. Some Asian parents said their children were being targeted because of their race, yet some Black and Latino parents felt those other parents were aligning themselves with a discriminatory system. Joyce says this is one of the many examples where marginalized groups were fighting each other and allowing white supremacy to skate by without anyone noticing. What people are not fighting for is a systemic change where every school in every school district is so good that we would not want to fight to put our kids on buses at 6.30 in the morning to send them to school because they can't walk down the block and go to a school within a block of their home. Also, there has been economic competition largely fueled by systemic racism. Much of what appears to be oppositions in the community to changes in the school system is largely fueled by the fact that there is a lack of resources. The Asian American community come from a culture where exams to be admitted to the best schools in the country is prevalent. That is the way things are done in those countries. They don't have an understanding of 
affirmative action and the racialized nature of this country in depriving people of opportunities for decades and generations because they are of African or any other heritage. Joyce says they don't know this history for a few reasons. One, history isn't exactly every school district's forte. I mean, look at the current fights happening now. Two, according to the mayor's office, 71% of AAPI folks are foreign-born in New York City. Joyce says that contributes to a lack of understanding about these very historic problems. And three, the media. The history and the image of African-American communities that are being exported all over the world, including Asia, is largely negative because of who controls the media and what gets into the media that's published abroad. Another sore spot, police. We already know what the relationship is like between the black community and police. But in light of the rise in anti-Asian crimes, some AAPI leaders have called for more police on the streets as a way of preventing attacks. It appears that the presence of police will mean a deterrence. At the same time, Asian communities are well aware that the presence of police may mean ticketing and violations for things that they may normally not have been ticketed or given a summons for. But I think the issue of their safety has overridden all of their other concerns. And unfortunately, in this country, it's true that when an African-American person crosses the path of law enforcement, the outcomes are not always good. This call for more police officers has enforced a stereotype that Asian Americans have a trusting relationship with police, but that's not necessarily true. In fact, a recent Pew study found that only 16% of Asian adults have confidence in police. The police in many Asian countries is not a trusted organization because there's tremendous corruption in in the police representation but in addition to that historically the chinese community many of the other asian communities have not had positive experiences with the police when the police in your country have been used to incarcerate you for your political beliefs you're probably not gonna be down with police there is a palpable difference I think between how the national imaginary understands Asian America and how we understand ourselves. We want to be really careful about the assumptions we make about Asian Americans because so much of that, like so many other communities of color, has been informed by white supremacy. These assumptions that we're all conservative, that we hate affirmative action, that none of us are fighting police brutality. These are assumptions that we make in large part because we drank the Kool-Aid of white supremacy. And then there is South Central Los Angeles in the 90s. Are we aware that in 1992, there was a huge uprising in response to police brutality and the really brutal assault of Rodney King? Yes. Do we understand that that moment actually resulted in this long enduring narrative that Asian American communities and black American communities are antagonistic, hostile and at odds. No, I think we've just kind of let that narrative really dig its heels into how we understand ourselves and each other. And I think that is something that 
you know, has been reproduced over and over again in the way that we talk about this incident and these uprisings, in the way that we talk about Asian American and Black American communities. So there's a reality that 92 was very loud for a number of reasons, and I think a number of rightful reasons. It's the first time that we saw a recorded incidents of police brutality right. that went viral. But that moment also really shaped how we understand race in this country between two communities of color. And it made it seem like there was this perpetual divide, both that existed, maybe erroneously, and also that we have to overcome that was insurmountable. We then, you know, didn't talk about things like Vietnamese and Black folks rebuilding Eastern New Orleans together post-Katrina. The lack of visibility, I think, coincides with the reality that 92 takes up a lot of bandwidth when it comes to the American conversation about race. You've heard the term white supremacy a lot because activists say that's what much of this boils down to. Kim describes it as Bugs Bunny. You know how Bugs Bunny was always up to no good, always got away unscathed, just plotting and scheming. That's basically white supremacy. White supremacy is extremely resilient. And I want us to remember how resilient it is. It is like Bugs Bunny. It always gets away. And so I want us to remember what Toni Morrison said about racism, which is that it's a distraction. Racism is really a distraction from us being able to come together as communities of color that are different, certainly. I think the experience of anti-Blackness and anti-Asian racism, they're very different. At the same time, we have to understand that they have the same root cause. And so we have to not let that escape. <laughs> Bugs Bunny cannot escape. And catching that rabbit means we have to honor where white supremacy shows up, not just at a systemic level, uh, but where it shows up for us in our families, in our communities, in our conversations, and these long-standing beliefs that we might have at a personal level that we've never questioned. So what's the solution? Although, realistically, I don't think this can be figured out in one podcast. However, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are very close as communities often in places like New York and California, that we like literally share geographic space. And frequently we share economic conditions. And so there's a, a scarcity mindset of us fighting each other for the same little bits under capitalism. And so we have to first acknowledge that there is real pain in our communities that we have inflicted upon each other. And then the other side of that is there are these things that we really do believe within Asian American communities about Black folks that only we can talk about. It's, in, it's incumbent upon us really to have conversations with our grandparents and ask them questions that honestly are not shame oriented. She says these are the types of conversations that only Asian folks can have with Asian folks and black folks can have with black folks. There's no scarcity of racism. No one wins the oppression Olympics, so I don't want us to compete about that. The only way to really change the face of injustice is to actually talk about injustice. She says it takes time. We we tend to approach racial justice and gender justice work with this expectation that we're going to fix it in one campaign, one initiative, one tweet, one Facebook post. And I just want to really remind folks, it took centuries to build colonialism and chattel slavery. You can hang in there just for a few conversations with your grandma. 
And when it comes to generational activism, Joyce says there is a spirit in young folks today pushing the solidarity seen back in the 40s. But she says for more of this, a truer reflection of history needs to be taught. There are large numbers of Asian American community members who are making sure that newcomers learn about the history of Asian Americans. And the history of Asian Americans goes hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, with the history of many parts of Black history. I would really encourage us to learn history from the point of view of intersectionality. There is power in unity. If you take nothing else from this episode, at least remember that. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond Black History Month. If you're enjoying the series, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Beyond Black History Month is a special production of WCBS News Radio 880 and 1010 Wins. Big thanks to producers Jill Webb, Dempsey Pillot, and Andy Egan Thorpe. Tim Schaud is the WCBS 880 brand manager, and Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Fami Redwood. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 